Welcome to the Imposture to Unstoppable podcast, where physicians can learn how to overcome imposter syndrome and create the career of their dreams. Before we jump in today, I want to tell you about my masterclass that's coming up on Wednesday, March 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is the five steps to overcoming self-doubt. In the masterclass, I will teach you the most common causes of self-doubt, what no one ever told you about confidence, and what you must stop doing immediately to overcome that self-doubt. And also, how amazing your life really can be when you're not doubting yourself. I am super excited about this masterclass. I provide real, actionable advice that has worked for me and my clients. It's super packed with information, and you'll have time to ask questions and comments if you show up live. I would love to see you there. Again, it's the five steps to overcoming self-doubt. And I'm going to give you my favorite tip for getting out of the self-doubt spiral. And I'm going to tell you all about why I really, really love this concept of humble confidence and what that means in my life. So if you're interested, then definitely sign up. You can go to kristenyatesdo.com forward slash no more self-doubt, or I'm going to put a link in the information page for this podcast, and you can just click that to register. If you are not available on March 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, then if you sign up, I will send you the replay the next day. All right, on to the episode. Today on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Weitz, who is a fellowship-trained, board-certified pain management specialist who started her own practice and grew to 11 providers. She has also owned an anesthesia company, imaging center, as well as several vertically integrated medical businesses. She ultimately sold one of sold several of her businesses to her partners and retired at age 53. She now teaches other physicians the business of medicine. She talks about her experience with imposter syndrome through all of the amazing things that she has done. Enjoy. Hello there. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. Okay. You have done some really cool things we were talking about offline. So we have a lot to go over. So tell me all about your experiences with imposter syndrome with all of the things you've done. Well, I'm going to start at the beginning. Great. So <laughs> this is my very first day of internship. I was a surgery intern at UCSF. And for some reason or another, I thought that the first day was orientation, but it doesn't actually work like that. You actually end up like being on call that very first night. So I was on the neurosurgery service and my uh, senior resident told me, all you have to do is manage the floor. I'm like, okay, fine, not a problem. About 20 minutes later, I get a call on a beeper, you know, the old fashioned beeper where it says, come to trauma room one, come to trauma room one. So I go running, I'm thinking to myself, oh, he has something cool for me to see. I show up in the ER. And there's a guy with a gunshot wound to the head. His brains are hanging out. And the nurse says to me, what do you want to do? Oh, my gosh. And I looked at her and I said, well, why don't you call a doctor? And she's like, you are the doctor. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, I don't think you understand. I'm the intern. Like, I'm only supposed to be managing the floor. Okay? Welcome to medicine. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's abrupt. (laughs) That that was my first go-round. 
through a series of events uh, that I won't bore your listeners with, I decided that I didn't actually want to be a surgeon and that I would, wanted to be a pain specialist. In order to be a pain specialist, I had to do an anesthesia residency. The only problem was that I spent a year doing a surgery internship. So on my first day of anesthesia, I'm in, I have an attending who's basically my mentor. And he says, oh, let's go ahead and put on the monitors. And I looked at him and I said, what monitors? And he said, you know, you have to put on the blood pressure cuff and the EKG monitors and the pulse ox. And I said, oh, how do you do that? And he said to me, didn't you do anesthesia? I said, no, I've never done anesthesia. And I was a surgery intern. We left the room to go scrub when you guys were doing that. I have zero clue how to do this. And I thought, oh, my God. I went home and I said to my husband, they're going to fire me. <laughs> like, I'm way in over my head. Okay. Actually, let me backtrack and tell the story before that. When I decided to make the switch from surgery to anesthesia, I went for an interview at UCSF where I was already an intern. And th their process was you had to interview with three different people. Well, the first person I interviewed with said to me, why in the world should we accept you? Normally, we take people only from Ivy League schools, and you only went to Boston University. Oh, and I said, and I told her, and then I ultimately told my chairman who uh, interviewed me at, at the same time, I said, look, you guys, I really want to do this. I want to be a pain specialist. I have to do an anesthesia residency. And if you don't let me in, I'm just going to keep knocking on the door until finally you decide you want to accept me. So you can either accept me now or accept me later. I have no idea where I came up with the nerve to say that. <laughs> I think I was so put off by the fact that they were only taking Ivy League uh, medical school graduates that I figured, what have I got to lose, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then, so I also, you know, impo imposter syndrome is one of those things that just follows you yeah. your entire career. You know, when I finished my pain fellowship, um, I became an attending at UCSF. And ironically, the guy who was the head of the pain service decided that he'd had enough. And I ended up being the de facto chief of the service on my first day as an attendant. Okay. Wow. And I thought to myself, okay, this is very interesting. And we had this, I don't even remember the details of the patient, but I remember thinking to myself, I have, I have to make a decision. I, I'm not comfortable making this decision. So I called one of the other pain attendings and said, Hey, can I run this case by you? I want to know what you, we should do. And the guy said, you're the attending. I'm not going to have this conversation with you. You need to make a decision. And I thought, oh, wow. What am I going to do if I make the wrong decision? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so then fast forward. Uh, ultimately, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitating because there are so many examples. Yeah. <laughs> you know, ultimately, I left UCSF and went into private practice, joined a group, and was the only pain specialist here in Baton Rouge when I got here. The only fellowship trained pain specialist in Baton Rouge. And I 
went to the hospital and uh, basically started this multi multidisciplinary pain program. And we had a meeting with the neurosurgeons, the orthopedists, and I thought to myself, oh, this is going to be very interesting because I'm the only woman in the room. Mm. And this stodgy old, probably 65-year-old neurosurgeon from the Deep South, remember I'm in Louisiana, mm -hmm. looks at me in this meeting and says, young lady, mm. that is not how we do this here. And I thought to myself, okay, my name is not young lady, but... <laughs> Um, and held my ground mm -hmm. because I basically thought, okay, I have no choice but to hold my ground. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and then, you know, it has been sort of a journey of this every step of the way from, you know, that point on, I decided to start my own practice. I had no experience in doing that yeah. uh, and thought, all right, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going, it's going to be trial by trial and error and, mm -hmm. you know, came up with a plan and tried to figure out how can I break this down into manageable pieces so that I don't end up getting overwhelmed mm -hmm. and essentially, you know, was able to conquer whatever fear just by plowing forward and, you know, each win kind of reassured me that, you know, I, I would tell my husband, I think, I think I'm getting away with this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and he laughed at me, just like you're laughing at yeah. me. Like, you're not getting away with anything. I'm like, sooner or later, they're going to figure it out that like, I have no clue what the hell I'm doing. And he's like, for somebody who has no clue what you're doing, you're doing an amazingly good job of it. Yeah. <laughs> and but I have to tell you that with each win, I just became that much more confident and realized that I needed to surround myself with people who also helped me feel confident instead of making me feel inadequate. Mm -hmm. um, and so when my practice grew, you know, decided that we were going to build a building knew nothing about commercial real estate, knew nothing about space, thought originally that we were going to build a space just for my clinic and that I would uh, maybe have an ambulatory surgery center to do procedures. And by chance, through, you know, hooking up with a, a, a wonderful commercial realtor, ended up buying a lot and building a 25,000 square foot build. Wow. Um, met with architects. I mean, essentially put together this building, built it from scratch, thought for sure we were going to rent the upstairs uh, as lease space and that we would only, or I would only occupy the downstairs. And this is, an, a, you know, another example of imposter syndrome because it, I didn't have enough vision at the time or enough faith in myself to realize the extent to which we were going to be able to grow. Mm -hmm. And so literally within four months of moving into this building, I came home and I said, we have a problem. My husband looked at me and said, whenever you say we have a problem, it's always a good problem. So mm -hmm. what, what is the issue this time? And I said, I'm out of space. We wow. need, we, we need to renovate this place. And so in the end, we ended up building out the upstairs uh, 12 and a half thousand square feet 
to be a 23 exam room clinic. Um, and then the downstairs became a multi-specialty ambulatory surgery center. Wow. And had I had enough vision and enough confidence in myself to begin with, I would have saved us moving in only to come and turn around and have to renovate the place. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to pause here because I can go on and on with yeah. multiple <laughs> other examples. I'll give you one non-medically related yeah. example. I have three children. When we brought home my first child, my son, I looked at my husband and said, what are we going to do with this thing? Mm-hmm. I, I have... First of all, I am not a kid person. I had no idea what to do with them. I had a younger brother who was two years younger than I am, but otherwise no experience with children whatsoever other than doing my peds rotation. (laughs) And I didn't know anything about boys. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and somehow or another, they've all managed, as we talked about offline, they've all managed to grow up and they're fine. So, you know, even in parenting, it creeps in. Yeah, it certainly does. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I think he, I even put my third, my third child home and I'm like, Ooh, I don't I still don't know. <laughs> so, so, okay. I wrote down some notes because you brought up so many good points I want to go back to. So the first thing you mentioned about, um, when you did the anesthesia your first day and they don't put the monitors on and this, th- this thought that came up was they're going to fire me. I'm going to get fired. And I think that this is a really important thing that comes up for a lot of people who suffer with imposter syndrome is they're going to, you know, and you said the same thing, like they're going to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing and they're, I'm going to get fired or I'll get kicked out of medical school or residency. So that's a very common theme. And I want to point it out just because so many of us, I know, you know, speaking from experience, I thought that it was just like an isolated feeling that only I had. So it's really, really important to know that you know, especially if you're in training, like this, this concern that you're going to get fired, they're going to get, you're going to get kicked out, or they're going to figure you out is so pervasive and likely 80% of your co-residents have the same fear. I think that's absolutely true. And especially, I have to tell you, having stayed on faculty after finishing my training um, and talking to residents and fellows, that is absolutely a pervasive fear. And Part of it is the old boy mentality of, I went through this, so you have to go through it. I'm Mm -hmm. going to torture you the same way. And some of it is the rite of passage. And this is a terrible thing to say, but physicians are really hard on other physicians. Mm -hmm. They, They are not very empathetic. Right. And I, I, I will give you, you know, an example. I actually had acute cholecystitis while I was a surgery intern. And this was an every other night program. So I had been, I went to the hospital on Wednesday morning for rounds at 5 a.m. And this is now Thursday night at 10 o'clock. I haven't slept. I haven't mm. gone home. And I said to my chief, I have this excruciating abdominal pain and I'm nauseated and I've been vomiting. I'm, I'm off. As soon as we're done with rounds, I'm off. I'll co- and I'm, I'm due to come back tomorrow morning. Can I please go home? And the guy said, no. And I said, I don't think you understand. I have 
really severe right upper quadrant pain? He said, no. So I threw up on his shoes. Mm. Then he said, okay, you can go home. All right. Why would it take throwing up on somebody's shoes? Why, why should I have to vomit on your shoes to get you to be empathetic? Mm-hmm. And so I think that people need to hear that some of that, I'm not doing good job, I'm somehow inadequate, is really the culture of medicine and a lot of sort of the, I went through this, so you're going to go through it too. Um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, that mentality. And it's, and it's pervasive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are, I think there's some hope in the recent, you know, more recently that this gets getting better, but certainly there's a lot, there's a long way to go. And I think the issue really is, is that physicians are trained and kind of subconsciously almost shown that they need to be almost like superhuman. Like you don't need to be sleeping. You don't need to be eating. You don't need to have to use the bathroom when you're in a 10 hour operating room case, like those basic human functions, physicians shouldn't need to do those, especially when in training. And it's not doing us any favors because now there's burnout and now physicians are leaving medicine because they can't do it anymore because we were never taught how to be a physician and care about other people, but make a sustainable career in medicine. There's been a disconnect there. So it's, it's as if, you know, trained to be superhuman, but then no one ever tells us you have to sustain a career in this for 40 years. And you got to have, you're going to have to learn how to do that with sleeping and eating and, and healthy habits. And that, that's, I think we've done ourselves a disservice in the field of medicine because we're not properly training physicians to learn and be and learn rigorously, but also turn around and create a career that we can actually enjoy for 40 years. I, I think that's true. I think that, but I don't think that that's exclusive to medicine. Mm-hmm. I think that there is really this sense. And, and I think maybe this is because I'm old, but I think that the, you know, give me the news. Oh my God, I can get the news 24 seven social media. I can find out every detail right this second. Yeah. I think this idea of life as a sprint has gotten mm-hmm. out of control. Life is a marathon. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would tell my patients this and I, I tell everybody this, you know, the person who runs a sprint may run really fast, but they have no endurance, Mm -hmm. right? The marathoner may run a little bit slower, miles per hour, but they're going to have that longevity. Yeah. And it's about trying to figure out that balance. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that you have to empower people to speak up for themselves. Right. Yeah, certainly. And I think especially as women, and women are really hard on each other. And I think that's not doing us any favors is like, oh, she, she's only working part time, or she's trying to raise a family and be the head of her department. And what she what is she doing? And there's so much judgment there. Instead of just holding space for what your women colleagues and saying, like, whatever 
you need to do what's right for you and your family. And that's probably going to be different for me and my family, or your, you know, if you're, what you do with your kids or what you do with your free time, all of those, there's just so much judgment because we, of the, you know, the culture of medicine and what we should do, you know, quotes should be doing as women. Um, that I think that's a hard, that's a hard thing because so, so frequently, if you were to ask a woman what she wanted to do, what she wanted her future to look like, she probably has no idea because no one asked her that before and she never thought about it. She's just been thinking what she should be doing. I think that's true, but all you have to do is watch the news about COVID Mm -hmm. and the effect on women, right? That women have truly borne the, 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 you know, worst of this because the schools are closed. They have to homeschool their kids. Mm -hmm. If somebody's going to stay home, it's going to be the woman, you know? And so I think that no matter how much you want to talk about equality, and I I actually have this conversation with my two daughters all the Mm -hmm. time, it's equal and equal and equal. And yet when somebody needs to call mommy, when somebody needs to call a parent, it's always mommy. Mm -hmm. When there is an issue, it's always mommy. If some, if somebody needs to stay home, it's from work because the kid is sick. It, you know, it's almost always mommy. Mm -hmm. Even when it's not, I mean, I will tell you that I had the tremendously more, um, well-paying career. And yet my husband who worked for, who is a physician who worked for a multi-specialty group, didn't run multiple medically related businesses, didn't own his own practice, didn't manage, you know, I had 50 employees in one business alone that, that I managed mm-hmm. among, 10, in, among 10 businesses. And yet when the kid was throwing up at school, who do you think they called? Mm-hmm. Right. And yep. so I, I think that until there's a fundamental shift in terms of, you know, women and responsibilities, not even in terms of medicine, just in terms of mm-hmm. life in the world, right? It's that juggling act is very hard. Yeah, it really is. And I'm, I'm actually on, in, on the opposite side of this, of this situation for my home personal life, because my husband's is a stay at home father. And he has been since my first, my first child was six months old by choice. And when I met him, he always jokes me about this because he he says our like our first date was like a job interview, which it was because I had been married before, and I really had no time to waste on stu- people who weren't going to meet my criteria. And one of that one of those criteria was I want I needed someone who was not a doctor and who would be willing to stay at home to raise our kids. So that was like a that was a non negotiable for me. And I going into the, my second marriage, I knew that's what what it would what it would take. So. And so that's how we've been living. And I can't, I, I, I'm so lucky and he's incredible, but the outside world, how they view us is still exactly like you said, even though my husband does all of the, you know, the majority of the parenting pick up, drop off of school and daycare. It's still, we have to actively tell people, you know, physicians, offices, schools, daycares, like, call him first because it's not intuitive at all and that's exactly that goes to your point exactly is that there's these assumptions about the family roles and who does what which feels like a huge burden 
that women have to shoulder. So I think that's true. Everything you said. True and sad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay. So let's go to the next point I wanted to bring up. So, and you, you, you touched on this. I just want to highlight it because it was so beautifully said when you went to start your own practice and these, this fear popped up and you just powered through it. And I want to highlight it because so many people let that fear make it mean that they're not going in the right direction or they, maybe they shouldn't do it or maybe they're going to fail. And what I want to say to those people who have that fear and think that it's because there's something that has gone wrong, the fear is normal and the fear pops up whenever we do something that there's some uncertainty or there is that risk of failure or making the wrong choice or whatever it is, but how we get to be successful and continue to grow personally and professionally is to plow through that fear. So, and that's, I mean, that's obviously a great gift that you have to be able to do all of these things and you feel that fear and just say, that's just there and do things anyway. But I'm going to take it a step further and tell you that while I have that fear, the way in which I'm able to plow through it is by really looking at data and figuring out how do I mitigate those risks? Yeah. Okay. I mean, because there are some, there are things that I'm very afraid of, Mm -hmm. like going down a black diamond uh, Mm -hmm. ski (laughs) ski slope. Okay. (laughs) And my family laughs at me because they're all expert skiers, but I stand at the top of the slope and I see the torn rotator cuff and the ACL. I'm I'm a pain specialist, right? I Mm -hmm. see all the people in my own mind who have gotten injured, but I can look at that same slope, dissect it and figure out, okay, is one side easier than the other? How do I, how do I mitigate it? Same thing, start my own practice. All right, well, maybe I don't take on the biggest amount of space or maybe I can find a specific niche. How do I dissect this? And that was what I was talking about earlier into bite-sized pieces that where I can understand the risk of that bite-sized piece so that I get over the fear of that little piece Mm -hmm. and I don't look at that whole thing and go, oh my God, it's so overwhelming. I can't even start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great, that's a great way to tackle big goals and dreams too, is if you want to, you know, 10 years from now, you want to be the CEO of something or make a certain amount of money and it feels so scary and big to you, chunk it down and say, yeah, that seems impossible right now, but what can I do today or the next six months to make it feel more manageable? And that's how we get to those big goals. So I, I love that technique. Absolutely. Um, one more thing. And then I have a question about um, what you're doing these days. So I I want another point you said about confidence and experience, and this is really important. So, so often we assume that in order to have confidence in something, we need to have that experience first. That's not really how life is. And especially in medicine where we're constantly learning new things and in training, there's surgeries we have to learn how to do and we can't experience it and then feel confident. Like you have to have that confidence first and not like confidence, arrogance that you can do all things and you're amazing, but confidence that you will learn, you will get better 
and that you can, you'll do the best you can. And there's that under, there needs to be an understanding there that you have to have the confidence and the experience comes afterwards. And then that increases your confidence. So that's how it works, but you can't say, Oh, I'll be confident when I have experience because you need, you need a little bit of confidence to get over that, to get the experience that's going to be worthwhile for you. That's absolutely true because especially in medicine, I I will tell you that it is truly a, an evolution. I think that people, you know, especially when you're a medical student or you're a resident, um, you think to yourself, okay, well, as soon as I get done with medical school, I'm done. As soon as I get done with residency and I take my boards, I never have to take another test again until, of course, they came out with recertification. But that's right. a different story, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but you think you're, you're going to like get there. If you're mm-hmm. honest about it, what you realize is that all that medical school or residency did was actually teach you the tools to be able to analyze data and to be able to figure out where you're going to find information mm-hmm. or figure out how you're going to do something. So I, t- I already told you I had acute cholecystitis. So mm-hmm. this was 1989. And the surgeon who operated on me did an open cholecystectomy. Mm-hmm. Okay? A, and the guy was 50 something years old. A year later, he did lap coles. Mm-hmm. I promise you that he did not learn laparoscopic cholecystectomies either in residency. Okay. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But, but, Somehow or another, he learned how to do it. My mm-hmm. husband is a urologist, okay? There was no such thing as robotics right. back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And yet now, robotics are the standard of care. So if you don't progress, you get left behind. Mm-hmm. And so you have to recognize that you have a set of tools. You have a tool chest that you've acquired. And that is what gives you that confidence, mm-hmm. right? is the ability to understand your tools and apply the tools and then go out and, and find the resources to help for whatever you don't know. Maybe you don't know a technique or for, or for example, people always tell me, ah, I can't possibly start my own practice. I don't know anything about the business of medicine. Okay. But you learn all sorts of other things. Why, why is mm-hmm. this so hard? Right. 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 And so it is, it, is once you recognize that you have a lifelong learning, mm-hmm. thanks CME, right? Yeah. That's really what the goal is, right? Then that's, that is where that confidence has to come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that analogy. I think that's so perfect. And it's that, that's the importance of shifting from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. Because if, when you're, in, you're stuck in a fixed mindset, then you think, oh, this is it. This is the set of, the set of skills I have for a lifetime. And you're doing a disservice to yourself because if you can just switch it and say, no, I'm, I can continue to grow and learn and get better, then that toolbox that you have is going to be so much more meaningful for you. Absolutely. Yeah. So b- before we end here, I'd love to know what you're doing now because now you're helping other physicians on the, in the business side, right? Yes. Yeah, so basically we retired, we sold all of the businesses uh, four years ago, retired uh, and we're, tra- we're traveling the world uh, until COVID hit. Yeah. And through a series of events, I have been in multiple Facebook groups and reading the comments of all of these physicians who are 
burnt out, miserable, want a side gig, want to leave medicine, want to do something else. And I'm looking at this going, you, you spent all of this time and effort and money to become a physician. And there is a huge opportunity. If you start your own practice, then you can control your own destiny. You end up practicing medicine the way that you want. Mm -hmm. You can make more money. You can control your own hours. And so as we were discussing for women, you have way more flexibility than if you work for a big entity. And then you can use that your practice as a foundation to add multiple other revenue streams. So for example, if you have a practice, maybe you add a weight loss component, maybe you add physical therapy, maybe you add uh, an imaging center, an ambulatory surgery center, massage, chiropractic. I mean, there's so many different revenue streams that you can bring in to leverage yourself where you don't actually have to see more patients Mm. and you can make more money. And so I I got very frustrated with the the fact that people can't see that. And so I'm now trying to teach people how do you actively do that? That's incredible. What a need, because I think, especially now, so many people are having to think they have to sell their practice. Like say, if they have a private practice, think they have to sell to a big uh, hospital company because they don't know how to make it work anymore. Well, I think the problem is they don't know how to make it work anymore. And if you simply understand that, so uh, as a, as a side note, you know, you see all of these posts in these groups about people who are, Oh, I'm going to do real estate or I'm going to do something else, some other job outside of medicine. You don't know anything about that. Yeah. You had to learn that. So why can't you learn how to better run your practice and take advantage of the, of your expertise? Because you know what? The barrier to entry to real estate is very low. So everybody and his uncle can do it. Mm -hmm. But as a physician, not everybody is a physician. You have a unique skill set. So if you apply the business skills that you can learn to that skill set, you have an advantage over everybody else. Yeah, that's such a great point. And because we're in it as physicians, and that's all we really know, we forget how many people aren't physicians <laughs> and don't know what we know because that's all we ever see. Well, and even if you look at the big hospitals, right? They're run not by physicians. Mm -hmm. They really cannot speak to all of the same issues. And the other thing that I will tell you is that if you think about a private practice versus a big hospital, Mm -hmm. the big hospital is the equivalent of a tanker. Mm -hmm. The private practice is the equivalent of a sailboat. Mm -hmm. Which do you think is easier to turn? So the sailboat is far more nimble mm-hmm. right. than the big hospital. Yep. And so as changes in medicine occur, as changes in reimbursements occurs, as telemedicine came into being much easier to adapt as a private practice than as a big entity. Mm-hmm. And certainly if you're part of a big entity, you have absolutely no say right. in how that adaption actually even occurs. Yeah, that's true. And that's, and that's where people feel they lose that 
control, which is such a big part of burnout when they feel like they have no control over their, you know, no autonomy. So that's a good, that's a really good point. And, and I think that at the end of the day, it really is about, you know, that, that serenity prayer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Control, control the things you can control. Right. Yeah. And let the stuff that you can't control go. Yeah. And be smart enough to understand which is which. Right. It's so right? true. And yeah. I think, I think that part of that being stuck mindset is that people spin their wheels trying to change things that they have no control over. Mm-hmm. And so if you're working, you know, I, I think my kind of final message to you is if you're working for a big entity and you don't, you feel you have no autonomy, you're burned out, you feel you're spinning your wheels, staying in that situation and complaining is a non-productive activity. Mm-hmm. But that does not mean that you have to leave medicine. You can change your circumstance within medicine. There are many different versions of this, mm-hmm. okay, that could be very successful. But you have to be will- willing to look beyond your small box. And I think part of the problem is that when people are stuck, they don't feel the autonomy, they're burnt out, their initial reaction is, Ugh, I'm just going to quit altogether and go do something completely different right. instead of how do I modify this mm-hmm. and actually take control of the parts of this I control. Yep. Absolutely. Such a great conversation with you. I appreciate your time so much. And um, we'll leave some information in the show notes about where people can find you, but do you want to give us your website or where to find you on social media before we end? Sure. So my website is Dr. Sandra White's D-R-S-A-N-D-R-A-W-E-I-T-Z.com. And you can find me on Facebook with the same name, Dr. Sandra White's. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.